Welcome to Open Door Talks, a podcast series for independent musicians on how to navigate the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, a music producer and DJ from London. I'll be talking to your favorite music makers about their journeys to success. Expect to hear a whole host of tips and tricks from seasoned professionals to help you move forward with your music. Follow Open Door Talks on your favorite podcast platform and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. Welcome along to Open Door Talks, your guide on how to move forward with your music. I'm your host, Lex Luca, and today you're in for an absolute treat. With us is a man who's been shaping the sound of house music for decades, Sean Spencer, a.k.a. DJ Spen. Spen comes from Baltimore and started DJing at the tender age of 13. He formed the hip-hop group New Marks and wrote the track Girl You Know It's True, which went on to become an international hit with Millie Vanilli. Spen went on to join Basement Boys before forming Jasper Street Company. Fast forward to today and Spen is still making waves with his musical productions alongside running his labels Quantized Recordings, Unquantized and Q3. He's nothing short of prolific with a capital P. And if you're wondering how to build a long-standing and successful career in music, this one is for you. Enjoy. So here we are with DJ Spen. How are you? I am doing well, Alex, and yourself? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Open Door Talks podcast. Can you start off and tell me who you are and what you do and maybe describe some of your characteristics? What kind of person are you? (laughs) All right. Well, I am um, DJ Spin. I am a producer slash DJ slash, you know, pretty much an all around entertainer guy. Um, (laughs) I've been doing um, actually DJing probably since uh, I was 13 professionally doing like my little edits and things of that nature, probably since I was like six, seven years old with like a pause button tape deck. But, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, um, I own uh, Quantize Recordings, uh, own and operate. I'm saying Quantize Recordings. It should be Quantize um, Record Collective. Uh, We have uh, three record labels. Uh, One is Q, one is Unquantized, and we are actually distributing three other record labels. So I guess you can add um, Consummate Businessman to that as well. (laughs) it's so many things that I am. Um, I hope that I'm an all around good guy and that's about it. (laughs) Definitely think you're an all around good guy and you're certainly a busy guy. Yeah. Busy, busy is correct. (laughs) Obviously you started DJing professionally when you were 13. Right. When did your kind of interest in music start and and what was around you as a youngster? Music was all around me as a youngster. Um, Some of the, my earliest uh, memories are, you know, listening to, you know, the music that my brothers were playing around the house, you know, when I was, you know, all I remember is just music being around. If it wasn't on a radio, you know, it was from church uh, because my mom and her sisters back in the 50s had a gospel group that toured uh, southwest, south central Virginia, and they went around from church to church playing. So, you know, they were into that kind of thing. 
I had a brother who thought he was Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Turned out to be a pretty good guitar player that, um, you know, was in a band and, you know, they would do rehearsals and and little concerts, you know, sort of on our back patio. Um, uh, and I had the other brother that was, I guess, the more what I'm going to call the predecessor to being a DJ. Um, you know, he would have his system and he would take it around to different places. And, you know, he would have his, you know, just a little kind of a setup and he would play music for people and do parties and that kind of a thing. Um, so, you know, it, it was all around me as a child. Um, and it sort of was a natural progression. And what's really weird is that, you know, I've I've seen pictures of myself as a baby sitting on the kitchen floor with, you know, the, the tops to pots. So the tops to pots would be turned upside down. There would be like four of them and I would be spinning them around. <laughs> so it's always been around. It's always been there um, since I was able to even remember anything. Hmm. So how would you describe yourself as a kid? Oh, absolutely an introvert. Absolutely an intro, just weird, just weird, <laughs> you know, different, you know, it turned out to be, you know, when I was young, I was actually good at, at sports and stuff, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, but um, outside of that, man, just, just a weird introvert guy that was totally different from everybody else. So to set the context, what was happening in, in Baltimore at this time? Um, actually, from a musical perspective, growing up in Baltimore was really good. Um, it was a time when, you know, you had various sources doing different things. So you had, you know, we were listening to 98 Rock or we were listening to V103 and then we had the AM stations, you know, we had a station that was owned by James Brown called WEBB and, a, and another station called WWIN, um, you know, and, and a lot of the stations were very, very into what was going on. So, um, you know, my, one of my brothers actually was, was went to a nightclub called Odell's. And it's very interesting because Odell's was like the, uh, Studio 54, I guess, of Baltimore, you know, the best way to put it. And he would bring home tapes from the DJ that was DJing at the club. So I got a really good cross section of all types of music. It was it was great, actually. Really, really good. Wow. I mean, that's the equivalent nowadays of, of, of you know, literally listening to a, a live stream from on YouTube or, or, you know, getting a DJ mag live set or something, isn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, and, you know, I never really looked at it like that. But, yeah, I guess that's really what it was. And then, you know, my brothers would bring home these tapes and then I would hear these records like Martin Disco Circus or or Tom Tom Club, Genius of Love or Jimmy Bohorn, uh, Is It In or you know, one of those records or something that would be on this tape. And then I wouldn't hear it on the radio till, you know, a year later or a year and a half later. I'm like, oh, I already know that record, you know. And Numbers and Planet Rock, that was a whole nother thing, man. I mean, it, before those records hit the radio, they, they I, I knew what they were. But it was like, where's this music coming from? Were you just listening to the music at this point or were you buying it or were you learning to make it or were you playing it? 
Man, I was born in 68. So the disco, I think the disco thing hit like around 75. And it was like this whole sensation that was kind of going on. And what was interesting was that, you know, you had everybody from James Brown to the Rolling Stones were, you know, doing this. Boom, 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 boom. I was like, what is this? So I, I fell in love with disco as it kind of emerged out of funk. So I was I wasn't even 10 years old, man, you know, trying to figure out what some of these records were, you know, that I was hearing on the radio. You know, Evelyn, I think Evelyn Champagne King Shame was the first record 45 that I personally bought that wasn't a hand-me-down for my brothers. That 99 cent record, you know, felt like it took me ages to get the money <laughs> to be able to buy it. But yeah, you know, I you know, in, in 78, in the middle of the disco heyday, I was 10 years old, having the time of my life, musically anyway. What an amazing musical education. Did you play instruments at that age? You know, I messed around with playing the piano a little bit. I even went to school um, for playing the piano for a minute, but it never took. <laughs> you know, so I can mess around a little bit, but not very much. It was DJing that sparked your interest a couple of years later. Yeah, that took hold um, very, very early. But I've always wanted to play an instrument, but I, you know, I've just never really proved to be any good at it. Guitar seemed to be too hard. With drumming, I didn't have the time, and um, you know, having a little studio, you know, you had to, you know, mess around with the piano a little bit, you know, just to learn how to uh, record into these programs and that kind of thing, but. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> so talk to me about when you started DJing. 13 is, is pretty young for anyone to start DJing, really, especially professionally. When I was 13, my mom took me to the radio station. Well, the, the, what, 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 had, what was happening was that one of the AM stations was playing um, these, what they called, uh, I don't even remember what they called them. But they called them a specific type of a mix. So there was this crew that said they were from New York or weren't. They were actually from right here where I'm living now, Columbia, Maryland, that would do like a mix, mixes of certain songs. So like the one that was really popular was their mix of Magic Wand by Houdini. And they would take all of these other records and mix them on top of Magic Wand and made this like seven minute masterpiece. And I'm like... I can do that, you know? So I, I literally, with my one turntable at the time and my pause button tape deck, put together a mix of, I think it was Orbits and the Beat Goes On. So I did that, put it together, and begged my mother to take me to the radio stations. You know, you know I guess my grades were good enough at the time that, you know, she, would, she felt like she wanted to do something. So she took me. Um, I laid the cassette tape into the hands of the announcer, who was a guy named Randy Dennis. And when, um, you know, when I saw him, like I said, I was a weird kind of kid, you know. I mean, I think um, I, I was in Catholic school at the time. And, you know, I, I'm here with, you know, looking at, with my little tie, necktie, you know, walking into the radio station with this real cool dude, you know, that like looks at me and says, yeah, man, so what is it you got for me there, uh? So, I, you know, I gave him, I said, look, I got this mix. You know, it's pretty good. He's like, all right, man, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a listen and I'll get back to you. All right, yeah. So I'm like, okay. So I went home 
And, um, you know, the ritual was that we would come home from school every day because WEBB was a station that went off at dusk. So it would come on in the morning at, at dawn and go off at dusk. So it, so it doesn't matter what time. Well, it mattered what time of year it was, because in the summertime, we got to listen longer. In the wintertime, you know, when it came to be around, you know, the middle of December or something, you know, we would come home and we would only have like an hour or so or a couple of hours to listen to it because, you know, when the sun went down, the station was over. So, man, we rushed home like the day after um, I gave him the tape. Now, I didn't expect anything at all. I actually didn't even expect to hear from the guy. But, man, I got home and immediately turned on the radio and my mix was playing as soon as I hit the door. And I said, oh, ho, 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 wait a minute. I was absolutely blown away, excited. And I'm calling the radio station. Of course, if you know anything about trying to call a radio station back then, I had to call and call and call and call and call and call and call. And by the time I got through, um, he was like, oh, so you that dude that dropped that tape off to me yesterday? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, well, man, you know, you're pretty good. What's the name of your crew? I'm like, crew? I'm like, it's only me. So I looked at my Newmark mixer, just like I'm looking at my Pioneer mixer right now. If, if this Pioneer mixer was sitting in front of me back then, I would the name of the group would have been the Pioneers. <laughs> <laughs> but I looked at my Newmark mixer, I said, well, we the Newmarks. And he said, okay, well, it's the Newmarks. And that's what happened. So that happened in October of, man, that, that happened in October of when I turned 13. So that must have been October of 82. And um, that turned into what it turned into. I did a couple of other ones, actually, you know, picked up another turntable because, like I said, I was only using one turntable and a pause deck and a mixer. How I don't even remember how I was doing it all. And then um, next thing I knew, uh, they were calling me to do a gig. And when I was doing the gig, I was like, oh, man, I just can't do this by myself. So I had to to go out and solicit one of my boys and say, hey, man, come on, you know, I'll teach you how to do whatever it is you need to do. And, you know, I, I got the coolest guy that I could get because I'm I'm the nerdy one. So I'm like, yeah, I need some cool people around. So I, I got the coolest dude that I could get. He came on with me. And, you know, next thing you know, we were DJing in front of, you know, hundreds of people at an arena. In December of two of of uh, <laughs> of uh, nineteen eighty two, <laughs> it was crazy. That's how it happened. That is such an amazing story. I mean, yeah, especially being so young and being kind of thrust into that limelight in a way. Do you remember how you were feeling at that point? That must have been super exciting. I was excited, man. I look back at it and remember, like, well, it's a problem. The guy that's with me, he's cool and stuff, and the girls like him and all of that, so he's making us cool, but he can't DJ worth 10 cents. So I had to really teach him how to do it. And I remember, like, when we first did the when we did the first gig, he just froze, you know, because we were trying to do something a lot different. Basically, what we were doing was everybody else was DJing with two turntables. I decided, okay, well, we're going to DJ with four. So I had two, he had two, we worked out a routine and he just froze, <laughs> you know, in front of all of these people. And I had to figure out, okay, well, he's, he's frozen. I got to figure out how we're going to keep going and just figured out how we kept going. And eventually he picked up everything and, you know, we turned into like this crazy beast. Um, and then after I added him, we added another guy. 
uh, named Cool Rod, who was our MC. So now we've got four turntables and this guy that's this other really cool guy, really, you know, with street cred, that's our MC. Then the last of it, at least at that point, we added his cousin, who was another DJ. So now we got six turntables, right? So now we're doing a six turntable thing. We got Cool Rod is out there rapping. Then we added one other guy, this guy named Kevin Lyles, who owns 300 Entertainment. Um, So it was us, all five of us, and everybody had different roles. So by the time we got it all straight, we would work in eight turntables, two MCs, and that's how the new marks kind of carried on. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it was absolutely crazy. So I'm guessing you were uh, orchestrating this development and then bringing in these new members, right? You were kind of showing them the way, right? Yeah, I was sort of the center of it until everybody got comfortable with their roles. And then we kind of all moved forward doing our different parts. And we all got really good at it. I think, it, you know, when we were at our best, everybody knew what their roles were. So we were doing all kind of things, man. Like we got so popular that when LL Cool J or Heavy D and the Boys or Run DMC, um, man, Dougie Fresh, we opened for so many major hip hop acts that came through Baltimore that it was insane. And then we ended up traveling. I think we did like Louisville, Kentucky. We did, uh, um, you know, we did some some spots in Virginia. It was crazy what was going on with us. Absolutely insane. What was it about you that people love so much? We had the authenticity when it came to doing the hip hop music. We had the 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 absolute love for that. But we also, because like I said, I was more of a disco kid we were able to infuse the disco with the hip hop and the whole hip hop culture. So when we infused all of that and got all of that together, I think that's what made us a little bit different than everybody else that was doing it because it wasn't just, you know, like, okay, here's, here's the new marks. They, they're going to go and they're going to perform for, you know, like one hour. I mean, we were able to hold parties now for four hours straight, <laughs> you know, I mean, playing everything from Madonna type stuff to, uh, Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam to, you know, the harder stuff, Run DMC and all of it. So, so we covered, you know, wide bases, you know, Kraftwerk and, and, you know, Martin Circus and, you know, it was wild. But we were able to, to kind of cover a lot of, I guess at the time, what people would call genres um, with what it was that we had created because we were all different sort of in our background as far as music was concerned. Mm, sounds like the the ultimate boy band in a way, doesn't it? Like the, uh, in a true music sense, you know, not in a manufactured way. <laughs> you know what, in a weird way, yeah, I guess you could look <laughs> at it like that. Would you say there was anything that you weren't good at? You know, could you identify those things and what, and what were you doing to improve at that point? We weren't good at singing. We had to learn how to sing. By the time we got around to doing Girl, You Know It's True, you know, and recording songs, we had to learn how to do certain things. So, you know, learning how to sing and how to, you know, be that kind of artist rather than like like a stage artist, a stage band. Now we had to learn how to infuse what we were doing into learning how to work in a studio setting. 
um, which was different because then we had to learn how to be produced by somebody else as opposed to just doing things totally on our own, which was a growth process. So, yeah, there, there were many things that we had to learn how to do. But I think that um, in the grand scheme of it all, I guess, you know, like any group, you know, every group has their, no matter how good every part is of that group, you know, you look at the Jackson Five, they were all really good. But, you know, you're going to have people that are going to stand out in certain areas. And that's the other thing. So, you know, we had to learn also how to deal with certain people doing other, with certain people being more popular than the other and having to move forward um, with and be okay with that. So there was a, there was a lot that we, that we learned, you know, just about being people within the uh, framework of the new marks. I want to just go back to what you said about, you know, there was a you know, big kind of period of growth. What was it like when you went into the studio and there were, was it a team of people or is it one person trying to produce you? Or can you tell us how that worked? Yeah, the first record that we did was a team of people. We trusted one. One was actually a very prominent DJ that was here, this guy named Dino Greer. So I was like, okay, cool. We going into the studio. It was just exciting because it's like, oh man, they want us to do a record. We're going to do this, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. We go into the studio. We do this record. Well, what we think is going to be the record. But by the time the record was done, it was completely different and we hated it. <laughs> it was absolutely, we, it, man, it was absolutely terrible. It was nothing like what we had went into the studio and laid down, which was lesson number one. If you're not the producer, you don't get the final say. <laughs> so we learned that one real quick, real quick, man, because that, that record was terrible. We hated it. But it was our first record. And, you know, we we marched around like it was our first record. So we dealt with that. The second record that we did, which was um, the same producer as Girl You Know It's True, was this was um, this record called Rhyme So Deaf, which was uh, produced by a guy named uh, Bill Petaway. And we had a lot more in common with Bill than we had in common with Dino. You know, Dino was a disco DJ, you know, that came from out of that kind of era. Bill was more of a producer, you know, that was um, uh, really familiar what was going on at the time, you know, so, you know, around 82. And he was a musician as well. So, you know, we were able to, I guess, influence Bill a little bit more as to what we were doing and what we were about to get him to have an understanding of what the new marks was at the time. So he he understood that a little more. And don't get it twisted. He did what he wanted to do. But I think because he hung out with us and did some things, um, you know, he had a little bit more of an understanding of okay, this is not what these guys want to sound like. This is what these guys want to sound like. And, you know, that that sort of was good in that way. So we learned to deal with that too. And the last kind of producer that we had, most of his stuff never came to the light of day. He really understood what we wanted. And we went into the studio and did exactly that. But I think that when our manager heard what he was allowing us to do in the studio, he was like, man, what is this? <laughs> we can't, we can't do this. <laughs> 
But it was more, you know, really what we wanted to be was more like, you know, your run DMC types, the LL Cool J types, not really the heavy D and the boys types or, um, you know, I mean, you know what I mean? But I think that they were pushing us to be more towards the commercial side and we wanted to be more towards the underground side. So, yeah, those records never came to the light of day. Working with someone like Bill Pataway, he went on to do incredible things. It sounds like, you know, he was able to maybe capture your direction and your energy and then, you know, maybe add some of his flavor as well. Yeah. I mean, Girl, You Know It's True was a track that he, Girl, You Know It's True in its essence, musically, was a track that he had laying around that he didn't like. Wow. He hated it. So we went and we were just listening to some stuff. He was just playing us some stuff. We were like, dude, what is that record right there? <laughs> He's like, oh, that's just this thing, man. I was working on it. I don't like it. I'm like, you are out of your mind. We, <laughs> we were like, we're going to record that. We're recording on that record. You're not throwing that away. And, um, you know, so we just took it and we developed what we developed on it. And I mean, he, he fussed at us the whole way through. Like, you know, I really don't want to do this. Essentially, you guys wrote it and then it was then made famous over in Europe, right? Yeah, it was. It was made famous. So the, the long and short of it is we recorded the record. The record did well. Well, I, I guess by, by most standards of somebody doing an independent record, the record did well. So... The record made its way over to Germany and these guys over in Germany heard it and they loved it and they re-recorded it. Um, and they re-recorded it with uh, with Millie Vanilli. Well, no, not with Millie Vanilli. They re-recorded it with somebody else other than Millie Vanilli and then pushed Millie Vanilli in front of it to be the face of it. And it became this really big hit record, man. Um, that pre- they, it, it changed our lives. Mm. <laughs> It changed our lives, that record. It really did. Um, for for better and for worse. For worse, I think that that was the beginning of the end of the new marks. And at the same time, it was the beginning for all of us to walk into what life really is outside of just being teenagers, you know, that... Uh, so, yeah, we learned so many things, positive and negative, from that experience. Um, so, anyway, long story short, um, yeah, they they redid our record. And, and, and if you go online and you Google New Mark's Girl, You Know It's True, and you listen to it, you'll see that they didn't change much. Yeah. They didn't change much at all. So, um, yeah. We were like, okay, well, what was wrong mm. with our verse? <laughs> you know, the, 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 but but the thing turns out that the thing that was really wrong with our version was that we didn't have the same appeal as Rob and Fab. Rob and Fab, those guys had an appeal that appealed to everybody across the planet. We were just some dudes that were trying to look like and be like Run DMC and LL Cool J, which at this, especially at the time, did not do that. What did you learn from that experience that's really paved the way for your music career going forward? The biggest thing um, that I personally learned from it is that there's this whole other world 
you know, music has different spectrums and, and attracts different people. And even though what we were doing was popular in our circle, it was not popular worldwide. So I had to learn how to how how that works how how it works when you create a piece of music that's acceptable by tons of people as opposed to just making music for yourself or for your immediate sphere man that was a lesson for me because again from if you just listen to the two to the two versions it's not that big of a difference between what we did and what they did. The difference is, is that theirs was a little bit more commercial leaning. Ours was a little bit less polished and underground leaning. So I'm like, okay, what is the difference? And man, I, I, I literally, one of the reasons that I left the New Marks was because there was this group in Baltimore called the Basement Boys. And the Basement Boys, actually, they remixed one of our records that we did after we did Girl, You Know It's True, uh, called Do It Good. And it just so happens that I was the MC on Do It Good. Now, that wasn't our total idea. The total idea was that, you know, we did five demos and we shot those five demos around, Right. Who would have thought that anybody would have liked the one track that's that's just me as opposed to the other real who I'm going to say were the MCs of the group? This was supposed to be just a DJ record where, OK, we're just going to surprise people and, you know, we're going to perform this and then you're going to come from behind the turntables, do what you do and then go back. Right. So. That's what that was supposed to be. Turns out that's the thing that was on the demo that everybody liked. So I'm like, okay, so now that causes a problem because now you've got this internal issue going on with, okay, well, you're supposed to be the DJ. How come you got this going on? And this is, and it wasn't my fault. It was just how it actually ended up. So that caused a problem in the group. But when the Basement Boys remixed Do It Good, here we go again with, you know, our, our version was the one that, that got people interested. But when Basement Boys did that version, totally nobody even played our version. It was crazy. It was like because, you know, Basement Boys version was more housey. Our version was more hip hop oriented. Their version just took off, was getting played by people like Tony Humphreys and blah, blah, blah. And the record wouldn't have sold anything. And I understand, too, that this was our first time putting our own money into our own record. Like before that, other people had invested. This is us investing in our own record. You know, so we took the $3,000 or whatever it was, go make the record, get the record press, got the record press. We're, we're walking around selling the record to different record stores and all of that. And the Basement Boys version is the version that took off as opposed to the version that we originally did, which also did, a, you know, that 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 created this problem. So I was like, oh, man, OK, so what 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 happens now? And um the Basement Boys, at the time, 
were working on, and this is no word of a lie, Crystal Waters, Alternate, Mass Order, and those guys. And all four of these entities were on different major labels, right? Here we are pushing our own independent record when right around the corner, we've got these guys that are on Mercury, Warner Brothers, MCA, <laughs> you know, and, and, and Columbia. So I'm like, something's wrong. <laughs> Something is absolutely wrong. I went over to that camp and was like, look, man, you know, these people, you know, y'all did a remix on this record that I did. You know, the first thing I tried to be was an artist with them, a solo artist. And I was just thinking, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to get my Will Smith on because this is where this is going. So I went and tried to do that. That turned out to be kind of horrible. And then, you know, Tommy Davis, who's my partner now in Quantize, Tommy Davis comes to me and he says, man, look, dude, you belong behind the scenes. You're too good to be trying to do this thing out in the front of the microphone and all of that. Start working in some production, right? Now, understanding that I came from the new marks and even though I was the guy that kind of started everything, my part in the new marks was to be the DJ. That's it. I was going to be the DJ. You know, we had Beatmaster Moses, who actually, who eventually learned how to run a drum machine and was killer at it. So he was the drum machine and he was the human beatbox and all of that. And then it was Junie Jam, who was the other DJ, and he was good at that. So I never made beats or, you know, did anything with, you know, a keyboard or any account, that kind of stuff. So anyway, long and short of it, I decided, okay, there's that we, we're going to do a reset, total reset. So I ended up being a pre-producer songwriter for Basement Boys. I stopped all of the, 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 the whole hip hop thing. I literally went into learning how to write a song from the bottom up and learned how to make beats from the bottom up learned how to run a program to talk about open door talks all right so i learned how to run a program that was an atari program i can't even remember the name of it mm. i'm sure it, i'm sure it'll come to me I th- oh it was called creator it was an it was a program on the atari computer called creator so the basement boys made sure that I had one. I had one at home. I used Creator to learn how to run a sequencer, how to sequence keyboards, how to record, uh, how to record uh, uh, vocals, that kind of thing. And my first kind of like uh, keyboard was an ASR10. So the ASR10, I learned how to make beats on it and do everything with it. And that was the beginning of the whole kind of. DJ spin transformation from being this hip hop artist producer into being a songwriter, um, just a songwriter, period. Songwriter. And then I helped to set up a lot of the songs that the Basement Boys produced so that they wouldn't have to come up, you know, with like the, the, the raw beats and that kind of thing. So I came up with a lot of that and would just deliver it to them and let them go and do what they were going to do with it and just kept doing it. Mm, wow. So is it fair to say they, they took you under their wing in that respect? They really showed you the ropes? Absolutely. Absolutely. They absolutely did. It was it it was um it was weird, man, because you know, I mean, at the time I was in school. I was in college. 
So I would go to college, leave college, go to work. I was working at a record store too. So I would go from, from college, work at the record store, finish working at the record store, go and work uh, at the Basement Boys, you know, or, or for the Basement Boys. I would do some stuff either at home or at their studio. And then, man, I was working at WWIN at the time at night because I was going to school for uh for communications so my uh my professor knew the program director he was like listen you know you want to do an internship and i'm like yeah sure we'll do it so he put me on a graveyard shift <laughs> he put me off from 12 to 6 in the morning so i'm gonna work 12 to 6 in the morning go to sleep for a couple hours get up go to college you know do whatever i'm doing go work at the record store leave the record store go work go do whatever i'm doing at the basement boys be at work at midnight and do midnight, <laughs> do midnight to six <laughs> it's crazy i don't even realize how i did it all but did it and it's a great way to learn isn't it just to jump right in and get a breadth of knowledge from doing the, the record shop to doing the the radio to doing all the production and the songwriting lapping it all up i guess just taking it all in yeah it was it, it was an experience it was really good so then what was your progression then on to the jasper street company when did you start kind of really taking a front role in in the production process i had been doing the pre-production thing with basement boys for probably about three or four years straight like i didn't do anything else I even remember one at, at one point, you know, one of my friends was telling me like, man, look, you're really good at this stuff. You need to be producing your own records. And going through what I had gone through with the new marks, I was like, man, I'm not quite there yet. Not yet. It's not time. So, you know, from probably from about 1989 until about 1994, I did the same thing day in and day out, working with Basement Boys, working on alternate Tay albums, working on Crystal Waters albums, working on Mass Order, you know, we're helping them do whatever they needed to do. But learning a whole lot, you know, man, shoot, learning about, you know, boards and, you know, with the programs, you know, because I mean, at the time, you know, Logic was just coming in and, and um, you know, all of these other things that I was just learning how to do. So I soaked it all in. And then one weekend, the Basement Boys said, well, look, man, we're getting ready to, we're going out of town and you're going to have a building to yourself for like a week or a weekend or something. I'm like, okay. And I, I, I made up in my mind, I was like, well, this would be a good time for me to try and do my own track. Um I said, all right, cool. So, you know, they left and, you know, I went into the studio and started creating some things. And I called in a couple of my, couple of the people that we were working with, you know, at, at the time. And I literally called in about 10 of them and said, look, we're going to come up with this record. I got this idea for a record called The Feeling. I just want you to go into the, go into the studio and, and sing about how you feel. What's on your mind? What's going on? So, that's how we came up with a feeling. I mean, we came up with this 10-minute house record called The Feeling. And um, we did it in pretty much one weekend. And, you know, when Basin Boys got back, they were like, wow, this is really good. And, you know, it ended up being the first record on Basement Boys Records. Our first record on Basement Boys Records. It was heavily supported by a lot of DJs. And next thing you know, here we go. DJ Spin and Jasper Street Company, we're on our way. 
And I think that happened in 19, late 1994, early 1995. I want to talk about the lessons that you're learning at that point. But what something that really struck out to me is the level of consistency that you had as Jasper Street Company. There's, you know, big level productions, really, really solid quality tracks coming out, you know, two, three really, really great tracks a year. What do you think it was about you that helped you be that consistent? I think it was just the work ethic. You know what I mean? I mean, it was... Um... It was the drive and the love for the music that helped me to stay motivated, you know, in, in doing what it is we do, you know. And and at the time, like I said, you know, I, I had like torn everything down that, you know, I was working with, you know, with the, the hip hop thing. And not to say that that couldn't have been successful, but at the very end of the day, I didn't feel the hip hop thing as much as I felt the dance music thing again coming from all of this you know is is the root of the fact that you know disco came along when i was kind of 10 years old so i loved that whole kind of vibe and that's what house was you know house is nothing but a derivative of that and um you know working with the basement boys really helped me to kind of focus in on that and the more i focused in on it was the more i just loved the sound i loved the energy i loved the culture the, the overall vibe was just was just awesome. So I think that having that just innate love for what I was doing, no matter how hard it got, no matter how many times they were like, oh, that's rubbish, uh, come back and do it again. Because it was a lot of that. You know, working working under Teddy Douglas, man, it was, was a lot of, nope, go back, do it again. <laughs> so um, I had a lot to learn. Um, and, you know, he made sure in the grand scheme of things that, you know, I, I didn't leave uh, or, you know, or that a project wasn't done until the project was done. So it was a lot of going back and forth and, and figuring things out. What were the things you were learning by bringing together all these talented artists and releasing music? Yeah, man, the, the dynamic people, people dynamics, you know, how, how to work and get the best out of one person, which is different from working and getting something out of the next person. So, you know, especially working with with Jasper Street Company, they were all different. Everybody was I mean, like we had there was one guy um, while we were recording. Um, he's in the booth. And we were all talking about something like we had gotten distracted about whatever. But he's in the booth and he's just standing there. Right. So. As we are in the booth, as we're in the control room, we're all talking and talking and talking and talking. And eventually we like, you know, eventually he said something. And when we turned around, he had totally stripped from top to bottom, totally naked in the studio. Because we hadn't paid, we didn't pay the guy any attention. And we were like, oh Lord, really, man, really? He's like, y'all didn't pay me any of mine. So I just figured I'd just go ahead and get comfortable. I'm like, really? <laughs> You know, so th <laughs> these are the kind of things, um, you know, that, that we went through. I mean, really crazy. A lot of it was fun. Um, you know, you learn the difference between good singers and bad singers and how how sometimes you can get a bad singer to sound decent. Um, you know, how to how to record a great musician into a program when he's playing all of these different nuanced things and how to make sure that everything he's playing is uh is you know translates to what the 
quantize or whatever it is that's going on inside of you know of of your recording system apparatus or whatever you know we learn how to record to tape we learn how to record to uh you know uh, uh, uh you know dvds i mean at one point we were recording to to vhs tapes crazy stuff but you know we went through a whole lot of stuff you know a whole heck of a lot of stuff um but a lot of hands on work with you know some really expensive pieces you know like an avalon mic pre i mean you know three thousand dollar piece of equipment that literally just records mics man it, it, it's a hands-on experience that i you know could not have imagined that i would ever have and you know having that experience has really led into um being able to uh do what it is that i do now in a lot of ways and to be able to do it quick and efficient. And um, so, yeah, cause back then, man, it took, you know, I mean, to make a record the way that, the way that we're doing now to make a record back then, man, could have taken months as opposed to, you know, you're working and if you know what you're doing, you could make a record in a day. If you know what you're doing and you have the right people and you have the right, you know, you just have to have the right elements around you. You can, I mean, the way that it is now, it's crazy. It's almost like you could do anything. Yeah, back then it was a process to everything. Yeah, for sure. So what is your songwriting process nowadays? I mean, just for like some some basic stuff, you know, the the, the essence of, of that is just, you know, the idea. Okay, what is it that I want to say? What is it that I want to to say with whatever it is? You know, do I want to do a track record? Do I want to do a full-on vocal record? You know, if I want to do a vocal record, how many parts do I need? You know, who do I want for a lead singer? So, you know, I think about all of that. And then if it's something that I feel like that I want to write, you know, I, I start the writing process myself or I'll start the writing process with a singer and give the singer the idea and let the singer come up with what they come up with. And then kind of tweak, you know, we work back and forth with tweaking. Oh, okay, well, this is not right, or that's not what we want to say, and you know, we kind of go from there. So, you know, that that's a pivotal part of the process when you're writing a song. When you're doing a track, it's a little bit different. You know, you just kind of have to, you know, like I said, I'll pluck around on the keyboard. You know, make sure I got a good solid beat. Pluck around on the keyboards a little bit, and then see if it's something that I can finish myself, or if I need to go a little bit further, I'll call a musician um, and, you know, give them my basic idea and, you know, sort of go from there. And then after that pro part of the process is done, you know, we, we figure out how we're going to record it. And a lot of the recording nowadays is done remotely. So, uh, for example, if I'm working with Tasha LaRae, who is an excellent songwriter, you know, I kind of give her an idea. She goes and she she writes to whatever track it is that I send her. And then she'll come back and then she'll have all of the parts laid out. And, you know, working with her is great because she can do everything as opposed to working with some of the, you know, some other people who I've got to be there in the studio with. So, you know, if, if it comes to me having to be in the studio with somebody, you know, we'll go, we'll pick a studio and different studios have, you know, which is a, a, another thing, you know, you have different engineers that are 
better at certain things than other engineers. So, you know, I'll go and I'll work with um, one engineer because I know he's going to give me the, the good, deep, raw kind of sound that I need. And he's consummate at working in Cubase, which is my preferred DAW. So he does everything in Cubase. We just go and we take it and we take it out of Cubase and I can come home and just go to work on it myself. Um, if I want to do something, um, say I want to record a choir or something, right? I would have to go to my other guy, right? Who has a big facility that has everything known to man. I mean, this guy's been been doing stuff, you know, since his father. I think his father owned the studio ahead of it. And man, they've got every piece of gear, every, you know, they've got guitars, they've got basses, they've got drums. He's got everything that you could ever need to go into a studio and record. So if I want to record a choir, I'm taking him there because he's got every microphone and he's got the space in order to record what it is that I need to record there. So he's totally different. He doesn't work in, in Q. I think he works in Logic. So, you know, there's a whole nother dynamic there with getting the pieces. So, you know, he's got to render them out and get them to a point where I can work on them in the DAW that I work on. And then there's another guy. He's also in DJ, He, you know. So it, 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 so it depends on what it is that I'm looking for out of a record. That's going to depend on where I decide to actually record or if I'm going to let things happen remotely. You know, I'm, I'm also working with a musician that can do everything. And when I say he can do everything, he can do everything. He does everything from playing bass, playing guitars, playing keyboards, playing horns, playing. He, I mean, he play. he does everything. So it's like, dude, here's what I need. I need this, this, this and this. And I'll send him an example of what it is that I want. And then he'll come back and it's all done. So now all I've got to do is sit and work out how I'm going to mix it and finish it off. So, you know, it's all about who you know, what you know, what the individual's strengths are that you're working with. And, you know, using those to the best of your ability. It's quite crazy now but you know as opposed to you know back in the day like okay fine i want to do a record with ann nesby okay ann nesby comes to town okay hey so uh, i want you to come to the studio and check this out okay so now we got to bring ann nesby into the studio and nesby comes in she you know we write the song right there then she goes in and sings the song puts the song together, does the backgrounds, blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool. So that was just a maybe month-long process of even just getting her into the studio, right? Then we've got to fix whatever we need to fix with the record. Then we've got to mix the record, you know? And, um, you know, there's times when we've had an engineer from New York come down and literally engineer the record with us. After that's done, then now the record goes through the process. And the process is you, you record the record, you send it off to mastering. Mastering gets the record maybe within a week, you get it back. After you get it back in a week, then you listen to it. If it has to go back, that could take another week, but whatever. Okay, fine. So let's say the mastering takes one week. You get the master back, you like the master. Okay, that's cool. Now we send it off to pressing. Now pressing is a whole other thing 
they take the record and they they press now they send you back the the, the proof you got to sit down and listen to it oh man that's not right so now you got to go back and and remix and then go through the mastering process again and goes back to the to the uh pressing plant pressing plants like okay all right that's cool so we like the proof then they press the record after they press the record which who knows how long that could take um depending on what was going on at that whatever plant i mean that's still you know it's a process that still goes on but man you know you're looking at something that could take three four months where now okay i called tasha Larray. I did I, I did the beat one day. I got the musician to come in another day. I got Tasha LeRae to do what she's done. And depending on how quick she can do it, that may take a week. I can bring it back. She records everything. I now can sit and mix it. Once I mix it, I can now take it right out of my computer and pop it into my CDJ here and play it. And I've got a record and I can send that off to be, you know, track source, uh, iTunes, whatever, man, that, that depending on who your distributor is, that could be between, you know, two weeks, <laughs> you know, and, and you got a record It's done and don't get it twisted, man. You have people out here who are consummate at, uh, Man, what's the name of it? Um, um, Bandcamp. You don't even have to send the record to a distributor anymore. You just put it up. You don't even have to be massive. Put it up there. Sell it. One thing I find interesting is because you described yourself as a nerdy kid, <laughs> that you became the epicenter of, of these projects and that you, you are actually the orchestrator. You're the guy that everyone comes to. You know, it's almost like you give you make the phone call, you ask them, you make the request and people come and say, yeah, I'm in. So what do you think it is about you that you are that person that people gravitate towards you as a musician? Man, um, God knows. I don't know, man. I I, I think that I, I really don't know, man. I just think that it's honestly, I think it was a part of my God-given giftedness to be able to um, work with people in that capacity because not everybody can do it um and and i you know i realized kind of you know right after we did jasper street company i realized that you know there's this thing that i have that people trust um which is something man you know that I, you know i i approach very humbly and you know very very uh you know mindful of the fact that you know with with when people trust you with their material with their you know their hard work and that kind of thing you know you have to do your best to do the best for and by them and you know we all make mistakes you know and i'm not perfect at it but i do recognize that that is a part of my giftedness and and you know and you know i was talking to one of one of my musicians yesterday a guy named Irvin that i work with bass player and you know I, I was telling him, I'm like, dude, you you know, your gift is being able to play the bass and and to attract people because he does the same thing kind of on stage, you know. So he performs with everybody, everybody that that needs bass, you know, calls this guy, you know, especially if they're coming through Baltimore, you know, they they call him, and I'm like, dude, that is part of what your gift is. You are like a bass player's bass player, 
And regardless of whether or not there are other people that are doing what you do, that do it better than you, in essence, there's only one you. And you have the ability to be able to do other stuff that even the most famous of bass players would never be able to do. But that's his gift. And, you know, I had to come to the realization that, you know, doing what it is that I do, you know, <laughs> because I didn't want to. All I wanted to do was create, uh, you know, really at the essence of it. All I would, I, I would be just fine DJing and, you know, making music. But I knew that one of the steps that I had to make was going into doing, you know, being the business guy, being a record label guy, because I've seen everything from both sides. I've been an artist. I've been a songwriter. I've been a pre-production guy. And I understand what it's like, you know, to have to go through what the trials and tribulations are. And, you know, me being a guy that 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 has a record label that has, you know, more than 500 records and probably I don't know how many artists are included in, in that. Um, being the, you know, being the record label for that means that I really had to have an understanding of what all of those parts are. But trust me, I, it's not like it's something I wanted to do. I think that, you know, God's given me the gift to be able to do it. And um, and because I understand it, I had to be or have to be where I am now. So, yeah, it's a humbling experience. But, you know, having um, the trust of people to that degree is is is, is heavy. <laughs> it's not it's not easy. So how do you ensure that you get the most out of the artists that you work with? You know, working with people is a give and take situation. You know, I mean, you have some producers that it's like, it's my way or no way, which is fine. Because if you have that kind of a talent and you know exactly what you want, go get what you want. So at the end of the day, you know, you have some producers, you know, I heard Curtis Mayfield was very much like that. You know, you it's like, look, Play what I say, play, don't deviate from it, do what I say, and that's it, right? And he made a successful career out of that. But I'm more like, okay, here's here's the idea. Even if I came up with it, here's the idea. Let's work on it. And if the artist or the singer or the musician has something different that they want to say, I'm usually open to like, okay, come fine. Let's let's go explore that. Because to me. There will always be another time that we'll work together, right? Especially if I like the experience. So I'm willing to bend a lot more in many cases, as long as the idea is good. I'm willing to bend a lot more in those kind of cases because there's going to come a time when I'm going to say, man, I need this and I don't need you to deviate. So if we're working together, we're working together. And like I said, a good idea is a good idea. And a lot of times you have to make room for God to do what God does, you know, and sometimes that comes in the form of listening and doing something that wasn't necessarily in your head. And many times, man, that stuff comes out to be genius. Just when you just, okay, hold on, let's see what else is, see what else is going on in the room or with another artist or what it is that they have to say. So that's how that works with me. Can you think of a time when it didn't work and maybe, and then what did you learn from that experience? 
Oh man, several times. <laughs> <laughs> several times. It it all you know what what I've learned from it is that look, you know, you try it and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It just didn't work. Um yeah, man, you know, there, there's several situations that, you know, I've turned out to be disappointed from, you know, operating it that way, you know, operating the way I operate, because people will try to tend to take advantage of it. But at the end of the day, I see the benefit of being partners more so than being a dictatorship, you know. And like I said, it's give and take because there's going to be times and there are times when I'll say, nope, that's not it. (laughs) And when you've listened and done some things that other people have brought to you, that tends to be okay. All right, we'll do it this way this time or we'll do it that way this time. You know, it's give and take. Do you ever have any artist block kind of experiences? And if so, how do you handle them? Hmm. Um. Just keep moving forward. You know, if, if, if there's an idea that I work on and it just like seems like it's come to a dead end, okay, fine, boom, I just leave it alone, go do something else. It's that simple. Because if it's meant to be, man, I, like like there's a song on on, on an album that I did, uh, the last album that I did called You Are My Friend. I've literally been working on that song for 30 years. Like literally 30 years. I wrote the song. I wrote all of the words to the song. I came up with all of the ideas, the musician. I've had several singers try to approach this song. And every single time, nope, that wasn't it. Nope, that wasn't it. Some pretty heavy duty and famous singers. Like, nah, it's not working. Tag, really? That's not working. Finally found the right singer. In 2000 and actually before the pandemic hit in 20 in 2020. And I was blown away. Completely blown away. Working on this song for 20 years. And this is the person who got it. Who literally got it. So, you know, my advice to anybody that's doing what we do is if you run into a brick wall with something that you think is a good idea, Leave it alone. Go work on something else. Unless it's something that you have to do, right? You know, I mean, like, if I'm working on a remix for somebody, I know, oh, man, the deadline is a month, <laughs> right? So, you know, there's no getting around that. You know, the deadline is a month. So, you know, you just do the best that you can with what you've got and present it to them. And sometimes, you know, they'll come back and they say, well, wow, that's really good. And you'd be like, oh, that's terrible. But hey, at the end of the day, you're doing a job at that point. You're doing a job for somebody else. And, you know, you have to deliver within a certain time frame. And if you deliver it in a time frame and they're happy, then okay, they're happy. You might not be happy with that particular piece, but hey, live to play another day. Live to play another day. I love that. What's one bit of advice for someone who's starting out on their musical adventure, on their musical production adventure? Music is a hard business. It really is hard. There's nothing easy about the music business. But if it's in your heart that music is what you want to do, be prepared to go on a wild journey. There's going to be ups. There's going to be downs. There's going to be successes. There's going to be disappointments. But 
if this is what is meant for you to do, you will be successful regardless of anything else that's going on or anything that seems like it's been a, a, a trial or a tribulation. If music is what you're supposed to do, you'll be successful, but you just have to put your head down and keep doing the work. If you do the work, you'll see the benefits from what you do. And I'm saying not everybody's meant to do the music industry. And I'm telling you now, you know, you know, you'll have people that's going to come up with records that, you know, you'll see them one day and gone, completely gone, doing something else. That's somebody that's not meant to do this. But if music is what you're meant to do and you're meant to do it for life, it ain't going to be easy. But you will love, absolutely have love for the good parts about it. You'll love it. You'll love it. And there's nothing else like it. So I would say just, you know, keep on keeping on, keep on pressing and, you know, don't let uh, disappointment or anything like that keep you down. Because there'll be a lot of people that'll say, no, 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 no. That's not good. That's not good. That's not good. But you get one person who trusts in what it is that you do and change your entire trajectory, change everything. What was the progression into Code Red recordings? What was happening during this time, you know, before you launched Quantized? I think my Basement Boys, my term at Basement Boys had kind of come to an end. And um, at that point, you know, with everything that was going on with Jasper Street Company, you know, I literally thought that Jasper Street Company back in like 2002, after we had done the album that wasn't successful um, or as successful as we thought it should be. We did that. And I was just, you know, at, at a spot where I was like, OK, it's probably time to do something a little different. And I actually had contemplated leaving the music industry, you know, maybe going back and doing well, the music industry as far as production and that sort of thing. And I thought I would maybe go back into maybe doing radio and all kinds of things like that. But none of that seemed to work. So I, I was approached by my then partner, um, Gary. And he says, look, man, I got a studio. Why don't you come on and, and, you know, let's see what happens. You know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So I said, all right, cool. I'm game. So I ended up going and working with him. And next thing you know, man, you know, we, we came up with, you know, some pretty decent records. So, you know, we, we came up with the mother funkers at the time. And that was kind of the, like, uh, the, the core production company for everything that we were doing, uh, at Code Red. You know, some of the biggest records we did at Code Red was like, you know, you know, The Way You Love Me by Mark Evans, the DJ Technique track called Gabrielle. Um, so there, there were quite a, a few big things that came out of that uh, adventure. Um, but the biggest thing being that, you know, we we, we landed a uh, distribution deal with Defected that um, ended up lasting for about six or seven years and um, pretty good. You know, we got to work with quite a few artist and um you know like i said the development of mother funkers as a band it was good and then you kind of evolved i guess into quantized how, how did quantize come about after that uh quantize came about in 2012 um the the distribution deal with defected was no longer in place um it had run its course and um the partner that i was with had other ventures that he was getting into. So, I mean, he was doing 
um, his, his main focus was to do the business section of it and to do the, you know, mastering and that kind of thing. Um, so his part just kind of diminished and diminished and diminished. And the more it diminished, I was like, okay, well, it looks like I need to go in, into trying to do something else. So here we go again with another starting something, you know, totally different. So in 2012, I kind of realized that, okay, you can't let anybody else do the business. You Now you've got to wear all of these hats. So you've got to do everything that you were doing now. And now you have to work out how to do the business and, and understand what the business is and run it. So me, along with Tommy Davis, um, started Quantize. And when we started Quantize, that was it. We, we now went from just being the uh you know musicians and the producers now we're the record label people as well so now we've you know the, the whole totality of the music business was we're doing everything so we're doing records from the bottom up and we're we're mastering the records and you know we're getting the records to the distributors and the distributors are rolling them out that's how we did it. And we've been doing that for 10 years now. 10 years of as of last year. What's the ethos at Quantize Recordings? And what do you think are the elements of its success? Consistency. You know, we at, at this point right now, what we're doing, we're doing a record a week. Where we started out doing a record a month. Then that turned into, you know, two records a month, then that turned into, okay, now we've got unquantized, which is totally different from quantized because we didn't want to be pigeonholed and just doing like, you know, vocal house or what they, you know, gospel house records. So now we've got unquantized and we're able to explore the deeper side, the Afro side, you know. So now we've got the vehicle to be able to do whatever we want. So two unquantized records a week, a month <laughs> and two quantized records a month. And then we started getting records from other people, a lot of records from other people. So then we were like, okay, well, this, we can't sustain this because, you know, people are going to want their records out some, you know, quick. And then understanding somewhere around 2015, we sort of understood, man, these records only have a one week shelf life, one week. Right. So if the record has a one week shelf life, we could do a record a week on all of the labels. Right. Which makes sense, because once one record dies out, you have something else up that people will buy. You know, because I think at this point we've developed what's called strictly rhythm syndrome. Strictly rhythm syndrome is. You know, when a Strictly Rhythm record came out, it didn't matter who did it. We just bought it. We just bought it because we knew Strictly Rhythm had a certain type of equality and there was going to be something on every Strictly Rhythm record that as a house DJ, we were going to be able to use. So I am uh, amazed that, you know, a lot of people think that about quantize, unquantize and what we do, you know, that and and um of course, you know, you have records that do better than others, which is the other thing that's really interesting. You know, you'll have a record that'll be around for up there. You know, we've had records that have stayed the course and, and been in, you know, some of these top 100s for like six to eight months. 
But most of the records have a one-week shelf life. Most of them. And especially now, we can't tell what a hit record is. <laughs> it's tough to tell. All we know is that a good record is a good record, but what's a hit record? What is really a hit, hit record? And what I mean by a hit record is not a record that's around for a month. I mean a record that's around for, you know, years. Years and years and years. So let's take that and look at what Motown was doing, right? Motown in the 60s, I think it was 65, 66, and 67. If you go and you look, you'll see that Motown was releasing somewhere between 100 to 150 records a year. And most people don't know that. But here's the thing. If Motown was releasing 100 to 150 records a year, what in the world were those records? Right? So we know Dinah Ross and the Supremes. We know the Temptations. You know, I mean, you know, we know Marvin Gaye. We know Tammy Terrell. We even know the underground ones, you know, jeez, uh, 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 you know, Shorty Long and some of these other weird kind of records that they were doing. But what in the world was Motown doing in those years where they had 150 releases? We don't know probably 90% of those records, Right. Just the fact that there, you know, there's no internet during that time, so it's just they're out, and then literally there's a shelf life on them. Now you understand my point. You get it. You get it. You get it because they because if you didn't have the internet, hmm. right, and you've got to go around to all of these distributors in the world. Right. Because it wasn't like you just had one distributor that covered the world. You had distributors that covered mm. territories. So what? Yeah. <laughs> like, how did that even how did that even work? So, you know, if Motown was doing it, you know, Atlantic was doing it, you know, Warner was doing it. You know, all of the major labels were probably doing something that was close to that model, mm. if not more. Mm. Than that model, but understand how much music that was. And now you look at it now, it's totally different. People actually had to go into a record store and discover, right? And discover. And depending on where you were, like let's say you're in New York City, I'm sure that they had more access to more music than somebody in, you know, in, in a town in Idaho. Yeah. Right? So you have to figure that now your local record store is actually controlling a lot of what's going on in the music culture of different places at different times. Mm. Now, everybody has access to everything. Mm. Everything. Every single solitary thing. Where back then, that was not necessarily the case. So you could go. It was fascinating to me to be, I'm in Baltimore and I'm listening to everything that I know. And then I'll go to Philadelphia. And now I'm listening to this cat named Jazzy Jeff 
or cash money and they're doing things with records that I'm like, what is that? I've never heard that before. What's going on there? Then you go to New York and then you hear something totally different or you go to the West Coast and you hear something totally different. You go to, you know what I mean? So it was amazing. That was amazing. And that's been totally taken away from us. Yeah. Totally taken. But, you know, again, there's so many positives with what's going on now, but wow. How do you maintain the quality control on the output of your label? Releasing so much music and it, there's always such a high quality and consistency with what you're doing at Quantize. We listen to everything. We listen. We listen. Somebody within our sphere listens to everything. Now, again, I kind of feel like it's a Motown thing because we have about six people that go and we listen to stuff. Um, one person might like something, another person might not like something, but you know, I mean, it, we kind of all go through it. And if, you know, two or three people feel like it's something sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll take it. Um, but then, you know, you have the obvious records and the obvious records are the obvious ones, but the ones that, you know, we will, you know, like that think there's a record on the table where only one of us really like it, but they, he loves it. So you know, do we take that record? Do we not take that record? You know, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. It all just kind of depends on what the overall um, reaction to the record is internally. What would you advise someone who's starting their own record label now? Same, kind of the same thing, you know, that I was saying about doing a production. Um, it, You know, if, you, if you're doing, if you're doing a record label, you know, the first thing you need to make sure is that this is something that you truly want to do, because I'm telling you, man, it, you know, you have to have a good understanding of what a record label is. And what I would say beyond that is go and look, do your research, look at what some of your favorite record labels are doing. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, not necessarily to say that, you know, emulating things is the way to go, but <laughs> in a weird way, emulating things is the way to go. Look at what others are doing that are doing what you want to do and try to figure out how to do that within your own, uh, you know, within your own way. Um, because, yeah, there, there are a lot of record labels. There are a lot of record labels that are... Um, that have a lot of artists and you have a lot of record labels that only deal with one artist, you know, only, this is my record label. I put out my own stuff. So, you know, you just have to figure out what it is that you're looking for out of it and, you know, move accordingly. Are there any things you do outside of the studio, any non-music habits that help drive your creativity? <laughs> um, I'm I'm kind of a family guy. It's not really kind of. I am a family guy. You know, I spend a lot of time with my family. Um, and just spending time with them, you know, I mean, I have a daughter that just, she loves the Wiggles. Oh, my gosh. Between the Wiggles and old episodes of Victorious, you know, and, and she listens to this stuff all the time. And I just pick up little things, you know, little stuff. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. And so she likes watching these music-oriented type shows and things of that nature. So I pick up a lot from that. You know, I've, I've, I've picked up tons from my son, um, you know, when he was living with us. Um, because, he, you know, he's very much into, you know, he's more of a musician than me. He plays guitar. And, and he's a DJ. 
So, you know, I, I got to, you know, sort of listen to a lot of things that were going on, you know, within a whole different genre uh, sphere when um, when he was around. So, you know, I mean, just hanging out with family, you know, I, I love watching a good drama or a good comedy. I'm telling you now, I don't, you know, th- there are a lot of people that kind of like, you know, they they watch TikTok or they'll do, fa- I, not me. I would, I'm going, if I'm going to spend a half an hour doing something, I'm going to watch a good TV show or, you know, uh, something like that. And, you know, musically, I'm always listening to what's going on in all of those shows, you know, like watching what they do, how they do it, you know, the timing of how they use these records and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's kind of you know, a little bit of what I do. Anyway. Yeah. I'm so, I mean, I've, I've got a, I've got a two year old boy and uh, spending time with him is, gives me a huge amounts of energy these days. It's uh, it's incredible. Yeah, man. Yeah. Gotta have that right. You gotta have the energy to move and do all of these things, you know, eat like, even when I'm working out, you know, the, the, the trainer that I work with, you know, he, he has his own kind of music sensibility and stuff. So, you know, I'm hearing all kinds of stuff, yeah. man, you know, doing everything. Can you tell me about a major setback that you've experienced over the years? And what did you do to overcome that? I look at setbacks as, okay, here's, here's a problem that, you know, okay, fine, we have to solve it. And it is whatever it is. I mean, because, I mean, in a weird way, I guess you could kind of say, you know, especially with, you know, we 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 moved into doing parties now, right? So we do these quantized events. And we had one that was that, man, where we lost considerably. We lost a lot putting on this particular uh, event. Um, I mean, it was almost kind of like devastating in a way. But if you ask anybody that was actually at this event, how this event was, what kind of effect it had on them. Everybody thought that it was the most amazing event ever. Like, wow, it was amazing. It's crazy. But we, but man, in the background, we're like, woo, we like almost to a point where we never really want to do another one again. But this thing that we're doing is not is nothing without the support of people, right? If the people like it, then the people like it. If the people say it was good, if the people said it was good, it doesn't matter what happened or how you actually got to a point where people actually enjoyed this thing that you put your heart and soul into and that almost crushed you. Which is why I'm saying, again, if the music business is for you, If what you're doing is what you're supposed to be doing, it won't matter about what you look at as being a setback. It matters what the imagery is of (laughs) what people thought or what people think or how people enjoyed it, because that's all that really matters. Right. And we've been struggling with that, man, for for a minute, but we keep going. (laughs) So. You know, I'm not looking at a setback. You know, it's not a setback. It's a learning experience. That's what a setback is. It's a learning experience. It's important to put your best foot forward with whatever you've got to work with. Regardless of what. You, You know, you put your best 
foot forward with what you've got to work with. We know you as a phenomenal producer and mix engineer, but you're also a great DJ. How would you describe the role of a DJ and how's that changed over the years? Back in the day when we were doing it, you know, a DJ had to have a little bit of knowledge about, you know, you had to have a wide knowledge of, of, of quite a few things. And I'm not saying that that's not the case now. I think maybe now you may have to have a little bit more, but the idea was different, you know? So if, you know, if I had to go and play a wedding, you know, I would have to have some type of knowledge of what's popular at the time. And not only that, now I've got to take my hard earned money and I have to buy that record or find that record. Or if a lady comes to me and says, hey, I want you to play this particular record by this particular art. I don't have that record. Now I got to go buy it. So DJing back then, especially if, you know, doing it the way that we were doing it, you know, we were kind of like mobile DJs. We were DJs that moved around and we did, you know, certain things. You have to have a knowledge of what's going on and you have to be willing to figure out how, how to get uh, specific music that, you know, your crowd might want you to play. Again, you know, we playing a lot of weddings, a lot of high school parties, and there were certain records, you know, we had to play. Whether or not in a grand scheme of things, whether we truly liked it or not, if we didn't hit that record, it was over with. So I think that was a good stage for me because I'm, I've am i always been a DJ that's wanted to see the crowd dancing. If the crowd is not dancing, then that's a problem. So um, I think that the way things have changed now is that everything is about a genre. So, you know, oh, he's a house DJ or he's a, uh, he's a, trance dj or he's a tech house dj you know that kind of thing um which is very interesting because you know i did a gig last year and i think you know the guy knows and loves what i do who hired me but i think that what his that the crowd that he had and it wasn't a big crowd i mean you know i mean it it was not a well-attended party but the crowd that he had in there, every time I went somewhere near a disco record, even though I think he wanted me to play more underground, every time I went towards a disco record, it got the three of the five people dancing. So I decided, oh, well, this is where I'm going to stay and I'm going to I'm going to, to drive that home because now all of a sudden I had a dance floor. But he wasn't happy because... Oh, well, you know, I had some underground people in and they didn't dance. I'm like, dude, it was like two of them and they were sitting. Right. So, you know, um, I think that that as a DJ, you know, you really have to pay attention to, OK, who's on your dance floor and how do you make the majority of that dance floor have a good time? It's long and short of it, you know, bottom line. And again, I think, you know, now that now that you know, the genres are around, I think that does not do a DJ, you know, it, it, it doesn't do the DJ industry to me a lot of good because what happens is, is that, oh, well, this guy is really a soulful house music guy. He can't play tech house, but that's not true. I can go into a tech house situation and kill that situation along with what it is that I do. So I think that the genres have really done a number on um, what DJing is to me. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting out on their DJ journey then? 
<laughs> the same thing, it's man. The same thing. I thought it might be. Figure out what you love to do and 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 go do it, regardless of what anybody else says. You know, I mean, if, if because there are a lot of DJs that play music that don't like doing what they do. You know, you see a lot of DJs just stand there like blah blah blah, <laughs> just play blah blah blah. And then you have some DJs that just dance and stuff, and there ain't nothing going on. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, you just you just you know, so you just have to figure out what floats your boat and what is going to make you different than every other DJ on the planet and you'll be successful. Open Door, uh, we bring together musicians, artists, DJs, producers to help them make music together. So what are your three top tips for those independent artists and musicians? Three top tips. All right. Again, I'm, I, and, and, and I'm going to stress it. Figure out what it is that you love to do whether it's writing a song, whether it's being on the stage at the forefront, whether it's being in the background, figure out which one it is you like to do and and literally put one foot in the front in front of the other and do it. The second thing is is that you have to figure out what makes you different than the next guy or person <laughs> doing what it is that you want to do because you're going to have competition. What's going to separate you from the competition? And third, be willing to do the work. Um, you can't you can't just say, oh, well, nobody likes what I'm doing. Figure out why they don't like what you're doing. Figure out how to hit the or, or, or get the person interested that's not interested. And a lot of times that means you're going to have to do it once, do it twice, do it 50 times, do it a thousand times, figure it out if that's what you really want to do. Um, so again, you know, you, you know, you got to put in the work. Spen, how do you manage all of this stuff that you do? Because you're running a label that is putting out a track a week. You're, you know, you're mixing records, you're putting out records, you're producing records, you've got your merchandise you've got a team of people around you but how are you actually managing it on a day-to-day basis man the grace of god is all i can tell you i don't know half the time man you know i i don't know um again i think it's just because i love to do what i what i do um you know it's it's not looking at you know nothing really is a quote chore unquote so for as hard as it is you know one you know one day i'm doing contracts the next day i'm working oh man taxes all of you know all these other things but um um again man you know i I think i manage it because of i'm i'm supposed to be doing this you know i know that i'm supposed to be doing it um and if i wasn't supposed to be doing it i'd probably be having a horrible time doing um you know, doing this stuff, but, you know, I, because I love to do it. So, you know, even doing the hard parts of it are necessary to make it, you know, to make it possible for me to do the parts that I love. So I guess that's how, <laughs> I guess, because truly I don't know. <laughs> how can people find out more about you and how can they connect with you online? Um, we've got all of the social media going. Um, I think we've even launched the DJ Spin TikTok page. So we've got uh the Quantize Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube. Um, we do a Sunday morning gospel show 
that I've been doing uh, since the beginning of the pandemic called the Praise Party. That's the only weekly stream that I do. But um, I do a first Friday stream over on Twitch, Mixcloud, YouTube. Um, you can also, like I said, I mean, all the, the DJ Spin socials are alive and active, as well as websites, djspin.com, quantizerrecordings.com. You know, you have to literally be under a rock not to find us or, or find DJ Spin. You know, if you go looking, you'll find it. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're doing releases all the time with Spotify, iMusic, and, you know, with the underground uh, sites as uh, Track Source and Beatport. So we're all over, all over. We'll make sure that we link all of the links you mentioned in our in the podcast description. Of course, the music that we talked about will also be in a Spotify playlist. So DJ Spen, thank you so much for the music over the years. Thanks for your inspiration to me personally as a music producer and as a DJ. And uh, thanks for your thanks for your words of wisdom for the Open Door audience. We really, really appreciate you. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, I appreciate you, Alex. Thank you for your support. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Open Door Talks today. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the love and share it with a friend. We've also got a Spotify playlist featuring the music from the podcast, so make sure you check that out and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. <laughs>